0: Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities from around the world. We're recording this episode in the aftermath of America's midterm elections, the first nationwide election since the January 6th capital attacks. They came at the end of what had already been a politically turbulent year. In June, the Conservative-controlled Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling which guaranteed the right to abortion. In August, the FBI raided former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. And in October, Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked in their home with a hammer in a botched attempt to kidnap her. Prominent Republicans questioned whether the assault even happened. In a typical year, we are not often faced with the question of whether the vote we cast will preserve democracy or put it at risk, said Joe Biden, but this year we are. The final result has yet to be decided at the time of recording, but some things have already become clear. Despite predictions that Republican revanchism would lead to a red wave, the GOP have failed to unseat many of the Democrat incumbents they hope to. For their part, the Democrats won crucial victories in Pennsylvania and Kansas, but may still lose control of the Senate if the Republicans win in Arizona, Nevada, or Georgia. Both parties believe that their America is at stake. I'm joined today by Robert Evans, a journalist and podcaster, He's reported from conflict zones abroad, but in more recent years, his work has focused on extremist groups in the United States, and in particular, the city of Portland, which has seen repeated street battles with the far right over the past two years. In 2019, he began his ongoing podcast, It Could Happen Here, by examining the possibility of a second American Civil War. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me, Lydia.
0: So, Robert, how are you doing? You were up late watching the results come in. So let's start there. This isn't what most pundits were predicting, right? Conventional wisdom had this as a Republican sweep, but that's not what we're looking at, is it?
1: No, and the conventional wisdom was pretty safe in that it's nearly always in American midterm elections. The... Um, the sitting president's party loses a significant number of seats in both the House and Senate. That happens pretty close to 100% of the time. Um, The last time we had a midterm election that went this well for the party that was in the White House was 2002 in the immediate wake of uh, September 11th. And obviously, people kind of lost their minds a little bit over that. But um, so this is this is a, a noteworthy shift from normal. Um, you know, if you kind of look at what a lot of pundits were saying prior to this, there was a lot of talk about how Democrats had gone too far in in backing progressive policies. the They supported you know, defunding the police too much. Um, they'd gone in on on student loan debt forgiveness, and all of these things were mistakes. Um, and I do think one of the really clear kind of clarion calls from these results as, as we know them right now on the, the day after, uh, the election on November 9th at uh, roughly 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time is that those pundits were very wrong. Progressive candidates did quite well, whereas conservative Democrats struggled. Um, you know, you had a couple of former police officers running in Florida as Democrats who failed. Um, you had the candidates in um, a couple of other states, the guy who was running against uh, J.B. Vance. Um, come out against Biden's um, student loan debt or student loan forgiveness proposal. Whenever you had kind of DIMS go the what we used to call the blue dog route, which is kind of Democrats that are much more conservative and do things like turn against Biden on student loan forgiveness uh, or do things like really lean in hard on the police. You've seen those candidates uh, underperform as opposed to folks like John Fetterman, who is a, a pretty unapologetic progressive has done extremely well, Um, and you're seeing, uh, you know, we had a massive upset, and this is one I think isn't getting as much national attention yet. Um, In in Los Angeles County, the sheriff uh, is a guy, Alex Villanueva, who exercised a tremendous amount of power over one of the most corrupt police departments in the country, and six months ago, probably everyone would have said, was a lock for re-election. Um, And not only did he lose badly, but a ballot measure passed that's going to make it possible for the City Council of Los Angeles to fire sheriffs in the future. Um, So I I think one of the things you've seen from this is that kind of the pundit wisdom that a lot of these progressive policies are death electorally uh, does not appear to be holding true in in light of, of, of everything that's happened.
0: So what what accounts for that then? What were the pundits actually missing? You think that they were missing the popularity of the progressive issues? I,
1: I think that is part of it. I think things like student. I mean, one thing that you saw tonight is the the Democratic Party got, or last night is the Democratic Party got heavily rescued by young voters. Um, you know, not just millennials, but a lot of Gen Z voters, and those people were turning out. I, I think the the polling suggests turning out heavily to protect their right. To things like reproductive freedom um, this was a i think some of the story is that this was about the fact that a, a number of candidates ran on progressive campaigns and that that was popular but i think a huge part of the story maybe the biggest part of it is that a lot of voters came out because they were scared as hell of the things that the gop has been doing and saying lately you know the republicans made a choice to embrace a lot of the most radical candidates, people like Bobert, people like Kerry Lake, um, who were, were saying some horrifying things, not just about the future of reproductive freedom, but about the role Christianity ought to have in our society, um, about LGBTQ people and what kind of rights they should have. You know, the, the Tennessee, after a night in which the state voted very progressively in a lot of ways, the Republicans are trying to push a ballot measure to criminalize like uh, uh drag events essentially um which at the you know if they won last night would seem like kind of more of a a a frightening step towards authoritarianism but given their failures to to lock in power in that state just kind of seems like spitefulness Mm -hmm. now and i i I think Mm -hmm. a lot of why the election why that red wave never materialized is that and this was something, you know, I was just talking about, I think the pundits made some mistakes in thinking that a lot of these progressive policies were less popular than they are. The thing that we couldn't have known was the degree to which voters were going to react against the the power grabs that the right has made. And I'm, I'm happy to say that it does look like that's one of the stories from last night.
0: Oh, so do you think this was actually a referendum on Trump in a way?
1: I don't know that I'd say, because I, I think 2020 was a, the referendum on Trump, right? Um, I think this is kind of a little broader. I think it's a referendum on what Trumpism has brought to the party. What what you've seen in the Republican Party, and this has been occurring for years actually, ever since particularly the Tea Party, but this this really accelerated under Trump, is you can't get elected or it's a lot harder to get, not elected, it's a lot harder to win a political primary as a conservative in the United States as a Republican without leaning into that I I I don't know what else to call them but like the fascist wing of the party, right? To attack trans people, to attack gay people, to propose these these nightmare laws, um, to, you know, do things like pose with a gun and talk about, you know, like Eamon Bundy did in Idaho in his race, kicking Democrats out of the state, all that kind of shit. Sorry, all that kind of stuff. Um I I think that that has become like because of how popular this this chunk of the republican party is it's become the easiest way to win uh primaries right is by leaning into the the most extreme wing of the party and i think what this election was was a referendum on americans saying well then we're not going to vote for republicans if those are the people you're going to put forward we're just not going to vote for them because you know we may not actually be as progressive as maybe this, uh, some of these results would suggest. Uh, But we're certainly, we prefer that to what we're being handed with these people who are are getting up and talking about how every election is stolen and, uh, you know, putting out some of the most like unsettling rhetoric in the entire history of American politics, which is filled with some pretty messed up Mm -hmm. rhetoric. Um, I think that's what this is a referendum against.
0: Well, if we kind of jump forward to 2024, I mean, it is worth pointing out that the Republicans did have an exceptionally strong showing in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis beat his opponent decisively, even in areas which have traditionally swung Democrat, And of course, DeSantis yeah. has made no secret of his designs on the presidency. Well, I mean,
1: I'm not surprised to see that. I would have been shocked to see anything happen to DeSantis or, or to happen to um, um, Greg Abbott, who's the, the governor in Texas, who beat Beto O'Rourke by 20 percent or so, um, because those states have been very good at number one, those states have been Republican strongholds for a while. Texas longer than Florida. Florida was once a swing state. There's, a, there's a, a longer conversation to be had about like why particularly places like Miami went so red. I think the lockdowns have a lot to do with it. I think the industries that traditionally sustained Florida and how they were impacted by those lockdowns have a lot to do with it. Um, I think the fact that DeSantis did stuff like go out after felons who were presumably supposed to be allowed to vote. Um and arrest people on the basis of kind of like very minor issues with their ballots that were technically in violation, like the there 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 was a a, a bit of a fear mongering campaign by the DeSantis campaign and quite a lot of cracking down on voting um because that 's you know what the Republicans do when they have unquestioned power now i don't know if I think that's the majority of the reason why Florida went so hard red I think Florida went so hard red because Ron Desantis is a competent authoritarian. Um, and very effectively built a base of power and is is has made it pretty much impossible to uh, to run successfully as a Democrat. Now, I don't think that's all on DeSantis. I think the Florida Democratic Party is not a particularly competent Democratic Party either, which is the, the issue with a lot of state Democratic parties, by the way. Um, but I, I don't think anyone who has lived in the South is, is surprised by that. And I'm not surprised by what happened in Texas. Um, I think Democrats have largely been mistaken in hitching so much hope on Beto O'Rourke. He's a very charismatic guy. He's good at building, um, uh, you know, a following. He's good at getting donations. He's a, he's a decent organizer. You know, he responded pretty effectively to the, uh, the, the horrible snow disaster that we had in Dallas about two years ago. I, I, I respected him for that, but, um, he's a bad political candidate. This is his third major election that he's lost and just ignited tens of millions of dollars. And by the way, the same is true of Stacey Abrams, who's wonderfully talented in a number of things and who did a lot of great work in, in getting people registered. is a big part of why Florida went blue in 2020, or why uh, Georgia went blue in 2020, but, but is not a great candidate. Um, and Beto in particular is not a great candidate because he does not understand how you actually reach out to independence in texas the dims are never going to win just on campaigning to dims and when you're doing stuff like talking about confiscating ar-15s again this is something that people outside of the u.s and even outside of texas because a lot of americans don't understand it don't get but like you are not going to win independence in texas by going after guns. um it's even after Uvalde, again, it, it, I get it, like I'm not making an argument about whether or not this is a good way for things to be. I grew up in Texas, I lived there for 20 years, it's the way the state is. Um, and I, I, so I, I'm not surprised that these red areas, that some of these red areas held in particular because the people, the, the, the authoritarians who are running them, Abbott and, and DeSantis, um, know what they're doing. They're very intelligent guys. They're good at maintaining power.
0: Well, then, do you think we're going to see both of them on the ballots for the primaries?
1: Not. I mean, I'd be shocked if Abbott ran. Um, I mean, we we might see him as a candidate for a little while, but I I don't know. I would be very surprised if he actually made a serious attempt at the presidency. DeSantis, sure. At some point, we're going to see DeSantis run for president. Mm You know, unless he gets like hit by a bus or something, I I can't imagine him not trying for that. It seems as if he's building his entire career towards that.
0: Well, some people might be tempted to celebrate if he managed to usurp Trump, but (laughs) he's a creature of Trumpism,
1: no? I I think he has taken advantage of Trumpism. I think he has used it to his own ends to enable his rise to power. I, I do think he's his own kind of authoritarian. I think that's actually one of the things most worth paying attention to with DeSantis. Is that while he's, he certainly understands the value of being allied with Trump and being allied with the Trumpist wing of the party, because it's the most activist wing, it's where the momentum is. I don't think he's a Trumpist. I think he's a, I don't know, DeSantis, I guess is what you'd call it. Um, but he is, I think this is what's unique about him because the Republican party is, has become filled since Trump's success with so many people who are nothing but treat creatures of Trump, creatures of Trumpism, riding its coattails. DeSantis is his own kind of politician and his own man.
0: Can you characterize when you say a different type of authoritarian?
1: Yeah. DeSantis is much more cut from the mold of um, a guy like Victor Orban. Mm. Right. He is more methodical. He is more careful. He is less showy. He is uh, less about, although he does, you know, uses populism for his own ends. Trump almost entirely exists within that populist sphere, right? You can see the man deflate when he has to do anything that isn't like get out in front of a crowd. That's what he likes to be doing. And that's how he's built his power. DeSantis has used populist rhetoric um, and, and, and propaganda in order to kind of further his base of power, but he fundamentally works through the political system and extends power through the political system um, and cracks down on any attempt at resistance through the political system in a way that is, again, very methodical and effective, as opposed to Trump kind of. It was a lot lazier about that sort of thing. Right. And, and, and as much, you know, January 6th is the kind of attempt at taking power you get from a man like Trump. It's very slapdash. It's very kind of like. Um, uh, It it did not originate from within the power structure in a way that 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 is significant. And I think DeSantis is a guy who is most comfortable sitting within the power structure and letting letting it um, letting it become a part of his him. Like, right. Like that's the way the man works.
0: Well, on the subject of January the 6th, I was quite struck by how much of the coverage was still very much stuck in horse race mode. You know, it's all about the minutiae of poll numbers and projections and not so much about what was actually at stake or how dangerous a moment it might actually be. Election officials have been threatened. Candidates have been attacked. People with firearms have been showing up to so-called monitor polling stations in full tactical gear. Now, as someone who's reported extensively on the rise of political violence, how concerned were you that this would be a flashpoint for another wave of it?
1: I mean, it looks like, and we're still trying to get a handle on exactly what happened yesterday and in and, and what places there, there were political violence, but there, there was political violence um, that occurred in and around the midterm elections. Um, in addition to this stuff, you kind of like started the episode noting a few things um there was a very troubling story in uh pennsylvania um of a a man who was killed by his neighbor um and his the 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 deceased man's wife says that it was a result of the fact that the neighbor thought he was a a democrat um like you you you've gotten a couple oh sorry this was ohio um terrible and then you had yeah and i think we're still kind of waiting to find out more about that case um but it it was it it was certainly an unsettling one and then um there were a couple of cases of targeting and polling sites in uh in new orleans there was a bomb threat uh, that caused a polling place to be moved from one school to another like it had to change locations as a result of a bomb threat um There were reports of on the street like poll watchers, kind of like the folks you talked about, uh, intimidating people in North Carolina, Arizona and Texas. Um, uh, More cases of people with guns outside of polling places in Ohio um, at a uh, West Bend. So I'm I'm pulling up some of the the things that I was saving last night. Um,
0: Practically everywhere. I mean, that just you're just spanning the country. I mean it's
1: It's a big country, right these are still this is not most polling places, certainly. The vast majority of voters would have gone to the polls without seeing something like this. but it's certainly more widespread than than we've seen you know most elections in my lifetime uh 2020 being accepted and it's 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 troubling. it's part of a troubling trend. I think you know it's easier now. I think if last night had gone down the big wave for the Republicans, I might have seen this with the intimidation we saw last night as kind of evidence more of how this sort of authoritarian moment is getting more powerful in U.S. politics. I guess it's possible. And I after the last couple of years, I hesitate to be too optimistic, but it's possible given the fact that this certainly doesn't seem to have stopped people from voting and that the folks, you know, intimidating people their side generally perform below expectations, you might say that this is a sign that that kind of behavior that kind of violence um, is part of what did them in and what we saw yesterday maybe the downswing of it. I don't know that I think that I'm still very worried about how hot the temperature has gotten and how um, how deeply angry American politics still is.
0: So do you think when we look back at this election, we're going to see it as a turning point?
1: That's very hard to say, because um, for one thing, midterms are midterms. You know, one thing that is worth noting is that like, while midterm elections are often crucial in a lot of ways for, you know, in terms of like what kind of stuff gets passed as the result of one side, you know, taking over another or being able to lock down the presidency and gridlock, They often don't change the overall swing of elections. Right. Um, You you've seen Clinton and um, and Obama both had disastrous midterms and got reelected. It's it's not a guarantee that it will. And also but also like, you know, in in 2018, Trump had a midterm that was like a a normal level of bad for the party in power and lost reelection um so i i don't know um i i don't know if i think i i I guess fundamentally if you're asking about like what does this mean about the broader state of violence in american politics and violent rhetoric in american politics one thing it does mean is that so far up to this point the the kind of republican bet that people will get on board with authoritarianism that that embraces a degree of aggression and violence. Um, if the economy is bad enough, uh, that that isn't true yet. Um, and I think that overall, one of the things it shows is that I, I think there's a suggestion here that Americans are kind of sick of the way politics mm-hmm. has gone. I don't know if that's enough to mean anything, because the Part you know the anger here doesn't come organically entirely. There's a degree of anger that's organic. Some people are always going to be angry at the government because the government's always going to get things wrong. People are always going to be angry um, at at the systems that kind of govern their lives. but the the way in which anger has become central to American politics is stoked heavily by a media machine by a massive network of media that's grown up since the talk radio days of the early 90s and i don't this is ev today like yesterday is evidence that that machine has been worse at building an effective political coalition than we might have feared but it still exists and it's still extremely profitable and there's still millions and millions and millions of people who tune in and get angrier and angrier every day. And I I, I think that the fact that maybe they're not going to continue to win elections the way they had been doesn't mean that they're not going to keep getting angrier, right? Um, So I, I think there's, yeah. A lot of unanswered questions. Can we still. can we
0: just dig down a little bit then into the actual risk of violence? It does seem like there's a growing belief throughout the country that another civil war in the United States is plausible. Even in the mainstream, a recent YouGov poll found that nearly forty percent of Americans believe one is likely to break out within the next decade.
1: Yeah, and s- since I've I've been the guy who's been kind of beating this drum longer than most people i started writing about this in 2015 2016. um i want to kind of before we get deeper clarify when i talk about the possibility of a civil war or some sort of large-scale civil conflict in the united states i'm not talking you know north versus south huge armies in the field like massive set-piece battles like you know we tend to think about when we think about civil wars i'm talking about a gradual increase uh and then a sudden increase in the frequency of political violence, things like assassinations of media figures, of elected leaders, things like bombings of places that are kind of politically hot buttons, and and that includes places that are like LGBT community centers, schools, that sort of thing, um, attacks on voting precincts, um, leading to you know regions of the country, areas, counties refusing federal control, and we have seen bits of this, and in, in Florida, the uh, Desantis refused to allow federal um, uh, agent, federal agents to like, what, like observe elections. Um, you know, we've had a bunch of different sheriffs around the United States and many different states, uh, say that they're not going to be enforcing specific federal laws around things like gun control, like versions of this are already happening. Um, and, and, and I, so when I talk about like what I'm worried about, it's all of that accelerating to the point that supply chains start to break down, um, that you have, you know, violence on a larger scale that is that is heavily politically motivated in a substantial death toll which would largely be as a result of like people starving people not able to get access to medicine the kind of things that happen when you know you can't transport a truck down a highway without you know uh, a heavy risk of it being mined or bombed or something like that or or just you know stopped by uh partisans so that's what i talk about when i when i talk about like what i actually think is a risk and where do i think it stands right now like i said as we're seeing kind of in in florida number and a number of other places parts of that are in fact happening um it's worth noting that most of these voter intimidation attempts occur in deep red areas so these are less at the moment these are less effective methods of trying to stop democrats from voting in places where they might win and more people in areas that are heavily read going after folks who they see as an ideological enemy in their midst and trying to intimidate them.
0: You say you've been talking, writing, speaking about this for quite some years now. So what made you begin to seriously consider the possibility?
1: Well, I mean, a big part of it was going to Iraq and reporting on the fighting against ISIS. And, you know, the people I were embedded with were, uh, for the most part, were Kurdish Peshmerga, which are not a military force in the traditional sense but a militia that is owned and controlled by one of the major Kurdish political parties. And, and basically all of the the entire Kurdish military force, which was so celebrated in the fighting against ISIS, and this is in Iraq, not in Syria, um, consisted of fighters from one of two political parties. And I, I started actually digging into how things worked in Iraq and how, how the way in which that quote unquote democracy functions. And a lot of it is sort of political parties that exert power and build influence by building armed wings and using them to both control society and distribute resources. And I, I, I kind of had the realization that, like, well, that's not necessarily so far from possible here. There's elements of that you can see in the Bundy standoffs, in in the constitutional sheriffs which are are sheriffs in a huge chunk of this country's rural population who are refusing to enforce specific federal laws um and who have often used their sheriff's deputies in order to intimidate and harass people to intimidate and harass activists um, to intimidate and harass uh, government officials attempting to enforce environmental regulations um you don't see anything that's as concentrated or thankfully yet as violent as what as what you see in the way these, these kind of structures work in Iraq, but the, the building blocks of it are in
0: place. That is really worrying. I spent a lot of time on the front line with the Peshmerga there. Yeah. And I spoke to the Minister of Defence as well. And I, and I asked how the front line worked with such a divided army, as you say, yeah. you know, half and half, two ruling parties. And he said, oh, we just split the uh, front line into two. And they don't... They... <laughs> They didn't. They didn't um, plan. They didn't strategize with each other. No. And so you have these absurd stories coming from the foot soldiers where one one set of Peshmergas makes the gains, another loses it, somebody yeah. comes in, you know, they're practically fighting each other in some cases. Just Literally of... in
1: other cases.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah was... they're not
0: the best of friends there. There's that too. Yeah. But it makes for a dysfunctional country in many different fronts, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's this.
1: it's this, I mean, not to say that like, you know, Iraq and the United States are countries with very different histories. Um, and it, it wasn't entirely based on that either. You know, a lot of it was reporting from Ukraine, starting in 2013 up through 2015, and reporting on kind of the very earliest stages of, of what we now call these kind of Russian influence operations, and seeing the degree to which, particularly, kind of the, the 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 shotgunning of fake news into a populace had been successful in building kind of the 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 space of in in kind of doubt and a lot of people in in particularly particularly in the eastern part of the country that provided some of the initial support for for the separatists and that kind of you know there's a a debate to be had about like because i know most people in ukraine that i talk to call it an invasion which is a perfectly fair term but there was a, a decent degree of local support for the separatist movement especially in the early days of it and i think a lot of that the space for that and a lot of the nature of how muddled that conflict started out as came because those disinformation operations had created so much anger, so much sort of s- such a divide between, you know, the the east and the west part of the country, which was a big part of if you look into like what Paul Manafort was doing in Ukraine, right? Um, th- this is kind of what those political technologists who were carrying out um, experiments and political manipulation that very much have kind of evolved into the campaigns that we see, see running all over the world today. Um, so you know all of that kind of fed into what I was thinking about when I was looking at the possibility of some sort of large scale civil conflict in the United States, because we often we have a history of feeling like we're insulated from everything that happens everywhere else in the world here um but we're, we're not ever as much as we think we are we're always we're, we're, we're so deeply a part of everything that goes on around everywhere else that i i kind of felt like the most arrogant thing i could do would be to pretend that these things i was seeing elsewhere in the world and not just in ukraine and iraq but in places like myanmar um the most arrogant thing that i could do would be to assume that none of these things could ever happen in the united states
0: So do you think it's broadly a good thing that more Americans are taking the prospect seriously?
1: Yes, I I do. Because when I when I started writing about this, my 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 goal was never to be like, you should start buying food and, you know, you should start stockpiling weapons and get ready to fight a civil war. My goal was, well, this seems like it's a realistic threat. And, you know, I reached out to people who were who were experts in their in their field, experts in counterinsurgency, experts in extremism. And they all kind of concurred with me that they felt like there was a threat of some some serious surging in political violence, at the very least, an open civil conflict at the worst. And I I, I felt like the responsible thing to do is, well, maybe if you can get people to take that seriously as a threat. They will not just vote, but they will start to act in a way as if that's a threat, and that will make the threat less likely. So I I think that it's good that people are taking this seriously. I think it's important to know what the stakes are. The worst thing you can do is assume this terrible thing could never happen here because we're somehow special.
0: But do you think it could possibly be quite a dangerous thing as well? I mean, we had Joseph Burton, a former American diplomat to Turkey on the podcast the other day. And he mentioned that he was becoming concerned about the growing enthusiasm of American liberals for the use of state power against their political opponents. And he compared it to the attitudes of secular Kemalists in Turkey, who have long embraced the use of military force against Islamist politicians. So even though there's clearly more appetite for anti-democratic violence on the right, of course, is that something you're concerned about as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm, um, I'm, not, a, I'm not a fan of the use of state power in, in most situations, but certainly not to harm people. I, I think it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike because one thing history teaches us about authoritarian movements is that when they try to take over the government and in democracy, if you give them a slap on the wrist, then they come back and succeed. Right. Like this is this is actually a fairly durable. You can go back to Napoleon Third in France um, to look at like cases of this happening. And obviously the Munich Beer Hall Putsch is kind of the the more common um, historical reference point. But um, this is a, a, a pretty durable lesson. So I, I do believe that when a group of people attempts to end the democracy through violence, you you kind of have to throw down. Right. You, you can't just be like, well, They didn't do it so let's pretend it wasn't a big deal at the same time the worst thing that we could do in my opinion as a response to january 6th and as a response to this other stuff happening is massively expand the power of our police agencies is throw more money and power at the fbi is pass new new laws and, and new you know executive acts that are sort of expanding the ability of intelligence agencies to surveil americans number one we tried all that after 9-11, and none of it worked. Um, and number two, uh, all of these organizations are fundamentally more aligned with the right wing. And so pumping more money into them in the hopes that they will stop an insurgent right is probably going to wind up coming back on you. You can look at how many dozens of police officers took part in the, uh, uh, the January 6th attempted a coup. You can look at stuff like the individual who placed the bombs at the DNC and the RNC the night before January 6th, who still has not been caught by the FBI, um, who I would say, if you were asking what the smart money is, has some sort of background in intelligence because that individual knew how to dress and how not to dress. They knew where the cameras were. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I'd be willing to bet you they were states away by the time the riot started at the Capitol. I I think it's it's when we're when we talk about fighting back against the things that scare us by arming a group of a third party, you know, who are effectively accountable only to themselves. And that's true of basically every law enforcement agency. um, That's a deeply worrying thing. So I, I think that the thing that I always try to encourage is like community and individual Resistance to authoritarianism um, and resistance to the people who want to make our society more politically violent than it is, rather than using uh, attempting to have an institution clamp down on growing violence because I, I don't think they're very good at that. I don't think they've proven to be very good at that. But I do think that when communities reject that sort of behavior, that does tend to be effective. It's the um, it's the lesson that. Most countries who have carried out insurgent operations fail to learn, which is that I mean it's the thing everyone talks about, right you get you got to win hearts and minds. What that actually means is if you want to deny a violent insurgent territory, um, you can't just kill them all, right? Because you never will. and and in the act of killing as many of them as you can, you'll create more. What you can do is, or what ought to be done is build space within civil society that is resistant to those movements. Um, And I I think that's the way I kind of look at it here. And I I don't think that is, I don't think that has anything to do with with wielding state power against these people, because to some extent, I don't think state power can be wielded very effectively against the right in the
0: United States. Well, then maybe the question really is, how did the country actually get to this point? How did Americans come to hate each other so much that they are willing to even entertain the notion that they might have to kill each other in the next 10 years? Well, I
1: mean, the first thing to understand is that this is not abnormal behavior, behavior for Americans. Uh, for one thing, we already fought a civil war that killed like a million people, you know? Uh, Americans do have a pretty long, proud tradition of murdering each other over politics. Um, this existed prior to the Civil War. You can look at stuff like Bleeding Kansas, John Brown's rebellion, um, and this existed after the Civil War. You can look at all of the violence that, that rushed through the United States in the post-Reconstruction era. You can look at uh, the Red Summer of 1918. You can look at the violence that accompanied the Civil Rights Movement. Political violence is, is far from unprecedented in the United States. In fact, it's fairly normal. Um, what is different is the way in which political violence spreads and is inspired algorithmically um, through the use of the media by bad actors. That that is kind of the novel dimension of what we're seeing, and it's part of why the the scale is so much wider than it used to be because of the internet. This happens at a much wider geographical spread, and it's much harder to predict. You know, last night while the elections, you know, the polls were still open. Uh, Some telegram channels that are used by the right started circulating threats of a mass shooting, that there there was going to be a shooting in the specific Portland neighborhood near some voting precincts. And like people who lived there kept asking me, is this a real threat? And what I had to say is like, there's no way to know, you know, this stuff pops up all the time before stuff that doesn't happen. So you have to kind of, if you're trying to analyze how likely violence is in an instance it's not just the presence of threats you have to kind of get wonkier about it and try to analyze like how dense the threats are right like me myself and a number of people published articles before january 6th warning that something like that was going to happen and the reason why we felt confident doing that is there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people talking about doing it right as opposed to to one or two but that's also just that's so new and it's something that clearly because january 6th happened i think it's very fair to say the law enforcement has not caught up to. And I think to a significant extent, neither have, have journalists or broader society.
0: Robert Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been The Lead, the New Lions magazine podcast. You can find Robert on Twitter at IWriteOK okay and listen to his podcasts, It Could Happen Here and Behind the Bastards, on your favourite podcast app. You can also find his essay, How Portland Stopped the Proud Boys, on our website, newlinesmag.com. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. Thank you all for joining us.